This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. With horror, the nation watched a video of a Minneapolis police officer holding his knee on the neck of George Floyd, a black man in his custody. For nearly eight minutes, Derek Chauvin, a police officer with 17 prior investigations for misconduct, squeezed the life out of George Floyd as three other police officers looked on. This firsthand observation of wanton police brutality sparked outrage across the country as it connected with the experiences of minority communities and victims of police misconduct. How did we get here? To a place where the public perceives the police too often as a threat to those they are sworn to protect. What can be done? What changes could Massachusetts make to build trust between uniform officers and our citizenry? My guest today is Jeff Jacoby, opinion writer for the Boston Globe. Jeff recently wrote a provocative piece suggesting that public employee unions may be at the root of the problem. Unlike private sector unions, whose interests are often in opposition to management, public sector unions often find their interests are counter to the public they are sworn to serve. In a provocatively titled column, Don't Reform Police Unions, Abolish Them, Mr. Jacoby argues that fundamental reform in policing methods, accountability, and transparency must include considering the elimination of police unions. Joining me as this week's co-host is Pioneer Institute's Executive Director, Jim Sturgis. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me. Jim, the article Jeff wrote last week was certainly thought-provoking. We all want good policing, but uh, what are your reactions to Jeff's ideas and what are your thoughts on opportunities for reform? You know, Joe, on on the um, overall topic, uh, we know the police constituent relationship in our cities is, uh, if not broken, really, really frayed. There are troubling trends uh, regarding accountability. There's a sense of, um, you know, people have a sense that when things happen, the police are not always forthcoming in revealing who used excessive force and when and how. Uh, this recognition that I think we've militarized our civil- the civilian forces in a way that's probably uncomfortable for a lot of folks. And then there's the issue of race, which is front and center in many aspects, though not all, of this conversation. Yes, and we're very fortunate to have Jeff join us for today's episode. What are two ideas or issues you'd like to dive more deeply into in today's show? Yeah, there are, there are two very specific things. First is that uh, Jeff is not only arguing that um, reform must, including abolishing the unions, but also that basically reform cannot happen without abolishing the unions. So it's not, uh, his argument's less an ideological one than, than one that's built around, hey, I've observed this, this, and this. There's no way to break the stronghold without breaking the unions. Uh, the second thing is, look, if you go back to the Globe and not Jeff's piece, but there was a piece that they, run, run, they ran by um, the former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he was talking about basically many of the same things. He's saying, you know, uh, maybe not the police union should be abolished, but he's saying, look, we need deep changes in unions. We need changes in civil service. We need to reaffirm management rights. These are all actions that the unions oppose. So he squarely put the union into this conversation, and I think it really belongs there. So I'm excited about this conversation. Yes, a lot of topics, a very uh, transformational change we're advocating for here. Uh, So I look forward to our conversation. So when we return, we'll be joined by Jeff Jacoby of the Boston Globe.
Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Salvaggi, host of Hubwonk. I'm joined by Jim Sturgis of Pioneer Institute, and we're now joined by Jeff Jacoby of the Boston Globe. Welcome to the show, Jeff. It's great to be with you. I've never been on Hubwonk before. It's a whole new experience for me. It's great to have you here. Uh, so, Jeff, uh, your piece is certainly provocative, um, and I think you started an important conversation. Uh, but let's set the table. Let's rewind a little bit with our conversation and provide some history. Labor unions have been around for a long time, but public sector unions are relatively new. Why have there been two paths, uh, the private sector and then uh, much later on, uh, public sector unions? You're right. Labor unions as a concept go back a century, maybe more than a century, uh, to the end of the 19th century. But it wasn't until the late 1950s that the concept of collective bargaining in the public sector began to get any kind of traction. Uh, I, I wrote in, a, in my column recently that uh, leading lights on the democratic left always took it for granted that there could be no such thing as collective bargaining for government workers. FDR was opposed to it. The New York Times, I took special delight in quoting a New York Times editorial which ran during the, the infamous Boston police strike in 1919, the New York Times said that a police officer has no more right to unionize than a soldier does or than a sailor does, and for the exact same reason. So that, for the longest time, was understood to be non-negotiable. Then, in the late 1950s, bit by bit by bit, that began to get chipped away. I think Wisconsin was the first state that legalized collective bargaining for, uh, for government workers. New York City, I believe, was the first municipality that allowed it. And then it was President Kennedy, President John Kennedy, who issued an executive order in 1962 or 63 uh, that threw the door open to collective bargaining uh, for federal workers. And within five or six years, public sector labor unions had become a massive political force in this country, and they've never looked back. So uh, in our show, of course, our focus is going to be on police unions in particular. Um, but you've made the distinction between uh, private labor unions and public. Um, what's the dynamic of public unions that uh, lead them to work against the public they serve, or at least can work that way? So that's a huge question with, with multi-part answer, and it's really the, the core of, of what I think the whole debate should be about, whether collective bargaining should even have a place when it comes to government employment. There are There are fundamental differences. There are two completely different categories of employment. The biggest is that in the private sector, management and labor, labor represented by unions, are fighting over a limited uh, amount of money, limited share of resources, which the company has to generate and which is generated through the work of the employees. And you could say, to, you know, to reduce it to a nutshell, that labor and management argue over what share of the profits generated by the company should go to management and what share should go to labor. But in the public sector, there's no such thing as profits. There's no such thing as making money. There's no such thing really as a bottom line. There's only taxpayers' money. And anything that involves taxpayers' money involves public policy. When decisions are made about how public funds should be spent, how taxpayer funds should be spent, how publicly funded employees should be disciplined or trained or what standards they should be held to. These are all, I would argue, public policy questions. And public policy questions should be decided the way all public policy questions are, 
by the people through their elected representatives in, in, in city councils and in state legislatures and in Congress, not in closed door negotiations between a private organization, the labor union, and a government employee, the managers who work for the government agency. So that's the, that's the philosophical difference. In practical terms, the amount of clout that public sector unions can deploy is massive compared to what union compared to union power in the private sector. For example, the private sector, uh, there was the there was the strike. Was it last year here in, in Massachusetts or maybe across New England at um, the stop and shop supermarkets? There's one, you know, a couple blocks from where I live, and I would see the guys out, you know, on the picket lines all the time. Okay, when employees at Stop and Shop, when their union decides to go out on strike, they pay an immediate price in the loss of a paycheck. The company obviously pays an immediate price in the loss of sales. Both sides are hurting. Both sides know that as long as the strike persists, they're going to continue to hurt. They're both using this as a kind of, um, uh, you know, as a way to exert leverage on each other. But in the end, both sides know that if the company goes out of business, they're all screwed. So both sides have an interest in coming to a reasonable uh, resolution of whatever their, the issues in dispute are and try to get the strike over with as quickly as possible so that the company can go back to, to doing what it's supposed to do. What happens in the public sector when trash collectors go on strike or when public teachers, public school teachers go on strike or, you know, Boston 1919 police officers go on strike? There's no... There's no uh, pot of private funds that are being uh, played with over here, what's really being exerted, what, the pressure is really being exerted on the public and how the public is affected by the strike. If you can't go to stop and shop because the stop and shop workers you know, walk off the job, you can go to Star Market and you can go to Wegmans and you can go to Roach Brothers. If your trash isn't being collected because the, you know, the trash department went on strike, the, you know, the, the, the trash collectors went on strike, the garbage piles up and piles up and piles up, and the union knows that that becomes intolerable to the public. And the public, which means voters, puts a massive amount of pressure on the political players, on congressmen or, or, or you know, the state uh, legislators or the governor or the mayor or whoever's responsible for the, for the oversight, over, you know, overseeing the department that's on strike. And that political pressure becomes intolerable. The, the result invariably is that government managers yield in the face of union pressure in the public sector in a way that they, that they are much less likely to do in the private sector. And all of this is affecting the taxpayers. All of it is affecting the public. And yet the taxpayers, the public, get no seat at the table. We are excluded from the negotiations of the contract from the negotiations when there's, a, when there's a job action. It's a completely anti-democratic way of making public policy. So that's a long-winded answer, but, but I think it goes to the heart of why collective bargaining in the public sector is so completely different from what takes place in the private sector. Hey, Jeff, this is, uh, this is Jim. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for joining Hub One. Um, let's, let's take it down to, uh, from that uh, great explanation of the mechanisms in, at work. Let's take it down to the police for a second and talk about accountability. That's the thing that's really got everybody focused right now on, on, uh, in the public debate. I'm just wondering, can you share some, some of your views on how unions protect their members from accountability to the public? There's been a huge amount of research on this in the last few years. 
Uh, and it's been interesting to me, having followed this topic for quite a while, to see the way the protests in the, in the wake of the George Floyd killing have really, I think, for the first time, uh, opened the public's eyes and ears to what it is that police union contracts uh, so often uh, provide. So there's all kinds of um, conditions and protections that routinely show up in, uh, in, in, the, in the contracts that are negotiated by uh, police unions. For example, uh, routinely, the, unions, the union contracts go well beyond issues of pay and perks uh, and compensation and retirement benefits, all of which could often be lavish and, and outlandish and over the top. But they often go to issues of discipline, even issues of how charges of broken rules and, and broken laws and violations can even be approached by the police department. So, for example, in many police union contracts, there's a provision um, that there has to be a waiting period before a police officer who's been accused of doing something wrong can even be interrogated by his superiors. Often there's a requirement that every two years or every three years, all previous disciplinary records of everyone in the police force has to be destroyed so that when something comes up, you can't say this guy has had you know, a 15-year history of this stuff because in many cases, there's only a two-year record to even look at. Uh, uh, Frequently, there's a, um, a stipulation that anonymous complaints may not be investigated unless the, unless the complaint is of some kind of specific criminal act. Many times, it's not even permitted to be brought up by the terms of the union contract. Uh, and then so many of these contracts have mandatory arbitration uh, provisions, which mean that even after you go through all the layers of appeal that the union contracts build in, and there's you know usually at least four level, levels of appeal, and sometimes five or six or seven, even after all of that is done, if somehow, by some miracle, a cop who does something wrong gets expelled from the force, very often the union contract provides that that's not the end of the game. He can continue to grieve it, or his union can, and it goes to a, an outside arbitrator. And what an outside arbitrator is really uh, involves a, a, a private contractor who's in business for himself or, you know, for his company. And they know that if they consistently rule against one side or the other, that they're not going to be called in to do arbitrations in the future. So you'll have, you know, cases, I mean, it's happened in so many different cities, cases where uh, cops are, are booted off the force because their, their faults have been so egregious and so not in dispute. And then in comes the arbitrator, often from another city or another state, and the union knows that they have an excellent chance of getting the punishment reduced. And in case after case after case after case, uh, abusive police officers are ordered reinstated onto the police force. It's no wonder they end up with people like Derek Chauvin and you know these other cops who are, you know, just to digress for a second, I think about that, that Derek Chauvin video in Minneapolis and the look on his face, not the look on George Floyd's face, but the look on the cop's face as, as he was squeezing the life out of this guy. It was a look that said, you can't do anything to me. I'm going to look straight at you, lady with the iPhone who's taking a, a video of me with this, with this, you know, blank eating grin on my face because I know that you can't do anything. And the reason he knows it is because unions so often guarantee that outcome. Yes, I, I think he had something 17 or 18 previous prior uh, complaints against him so that uh, he ha he's justified in assuming he's beyond, uh, beyond the reach of, of justice. Um, 
But Jeff, you're, what you're advocating for, you know, the elimination of, of, of unions, of, of public unions here, uh, specifically police unions, that's a heavy lift. Do you have any sense of what that would take, uh, what kind of initiative that would take in, at okay. the state house or at the state? Agreed. A huge political hurdle to climb, as with, I mean, you know, your Pioneer Institute, you believe in overcoming huge political hurdles and opening the public's mind to things that they haven't thought about in the past. Uh, so education is a lot of it. Raising awareness of what public sector collective bargaining involves, not just police, but also teachers and the others, I think is a part of it. Uh, arguably, you have a better chance of achieving reform in non-one-party states. It'll be a lot tougher in Massachusetts, which is, as we know, pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary of the Democratic Party, than, for example, in, in states like Wisconsin or Ohio, where, in fact, a number of years ago, there were sharp limits that were put on um, uh, public sector unions. Um, but I think between here and you know, the ultimate, what I would say should be the ultimate goal of no unions in the public sector, no collective bargaining at all for government employees, between here and there, I would propose that at least one uh, concrete middle ground might be getting legislation passed that would limit the scope of collective bargaining in the public sector strictly to economic issues. Get a law passed that would say that, that when uh, government employees through their unions bargain collectively with the state or with the city, they may only bargain over uh, wages, pensions, and um, uh, you know, financial and economic considerations, not over discipline, not over uh, uh, the maintenance of internal department records. Then at least, I think would, would help reduce some of the abuse that we've seen, certainly when it comes to police officers. And that might actually be more politically plausible, politically feasible than trying to, you know, lop off the whole concept of government unions, you know, in one fell swoop. Jeff, this is just building on, on, on Joe's good question. And I think you're, this is just, uh, you know, it's interesting to see it in the same pages of uh, the Globe, Ed Davis, former uh, police commissioner from Boston, saying many of the same things you're saying, right? He's talking about things like civil service restrictions. He's talking about police unions taking away management rights and management's ability to actually weed out bad officers, that sort of thing. So this is not off, you know, it, to abolish the unions is one thing. And that's a, that's a terribly uh, big lift. But uh, the reform side seems much more achievable. And I, I guess I, I wonder, what kind of feedback have you gotten specifically from the community? And what kind of feedback have you gotten from the ranks of police officers or people in law enforcement to, to your piece? I was amazed by how positive the reaction was. Let me tell you, I mean, you, you, know, you know this about me. The responses to stuff that I write, uh, it's not usually, you know, rainbows and unicorns and, uh, <laughs> and the heavenly hosts singing my praises. I get a lot of nasty responses to almost everything I write. I was, I was astonished at how many people emailed or tweeted or wrote in response to say, you know, I never agree with you, but I get a lot of that. I never agree with you, but on this issue, you're right. Uh, I got relatively few responses from, from police officers. One sort of funny one was a guy who wrote, uh, and said, how could I say that police officers are frequently lavishly paid or, you know, that, that, that their contracts provide them with, you know, you know, lavish, uh, outlandish pay packages. As it happened, the, the front page story in the Globe the day he sent me that email 
was about how, I forget what the number was, you know, more than two dozen, you know, Boston cops make more than $300,000 a year. The average salary for a Boston police officer is, is in six figures. Um, you know, I'll tell you, for rank and file schnooks like me at newspapers, that's not what average pay looks like. Just today I read somewhere, I think on Mass Live, that uh, in the city of Worcester, of the top 100 highest paid employees, 90 are police officers. I can't blame a cop, especially a good one, a decent one. And I, you know, and I should say, I fully believe that most people who go into, into police work are good and decent people who want to do well and who want to protect their community. Very often they feel, uh, feel a calling. Many of them are the children, the grandchildren of police officers. I totally respect it. And I think the idea of defunding the police is idiotic. You can't have, you can't have life. I mean, you, you can't have civilization if you don't have people who are enforcing the law. So I, I'm not against police by any means. And I'm certainly not against police per se in anything that I'm writing. Um, and I can understand why an ordinary, you know, guy walking the line, walking a beat, you know, who, who, who put himself through police academy, whatever it is, understandably, reasonably sees the police union as looking out for his interest. Unions do look out for their members' interests. That's what unions are all about. Teachers' unions look out for the interests of their members, and the trash collectors' union looks out for the interests of their members. But none of these unions, and this is what I've tried to explain to the few cops that I've heard from, none of these unions exist to look out for the public's interest. And when you're talking about public policy, public departments paid for with public money intended to protect the public, public policymakers are the ones who should be in charge. And I also would just Ed, you mentioned, one of you mentioned civil service. Um, to say that cops shouldn't be allowed to unionize, and to be precise, it's not the actual creation of a union, which is a you know, private organization. You can make any kind of club you want. It's the idea that they should have exclusive collective bargaining rights uh, with, with public agencies. But to say that cops shouldn't be allowed to unionize isn't, isn't to say that they shouldn't be protected. It's not to say that when a new mayor comes in, all cops can be fired under the old, you know, uh, uh, which were you know, patronage. patronage rules. Um, uh, th there are civil service protections. There's a very ample and detailed Civil Service Act in Massachusetts and in every other state and probably in every city and municipality in the country. And certainly police and firefighters and teachers should be protected by the same civil service protections that we would want any uh, competent and, and decent uh, public servant to be protected by. But just as, to quote that New York Times, editorial from 100 years ago, just as we don't allow soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen uh, you know, to form unions and bargain collectively with the Department of Defense, we also shouldn't be allowing it in public sector here at home. And while I agree that it's a huge hurdle to overcome the public's being accustomed to the idea that, these, that police unions and teachers unions exist, um, it's only, you know, this has only been going on for 60 years. It's not it's not impossible to start to move the ball in the other direction. And that begins by explaining to people what's at stake and, you know, why we should, why we should be open to the idea of making some dramatic changes. Jeff, you know, it's interesting in your, your answer, you mentioned teachers unions in parallel with police unions uh, three times in that, that uh, few minute answer there. Right. So we, we I, all I, know how powerful teachers unions are as well. And what a deleterious effect they often have on the public interest, you know, in, in the education field. Yeah, and a lot of this is so transferable that the lack of accountability. Can you can just expand on that a little bit in terms of the teachers union specifically? Well, you're you're much more the expert on on public education. I mean, this is a, a pioneer, uh, you know, pioneer's biggest wheelhouse. But um, 
But, you know, you read about the inability to fire a bad teacher, even teachers who have been accused of the most egregious kind of behavior. Uh, is it New York City that had, you know, or has the infamous rubber room where teachers who cannot be trusted to be in a classroom with students yet cannot be fired because of their union protections are paid their full salary, collect their full benefits, and basically spend the day doing nothing at all. This is no way to run a public school system. It's no way to run any kind of public agency. And again, people, you know, the, the post-George Floyd weeks haven't been the best example of this. But generally speaking, the public thinks well of police officers. Generally speaking, the public thinks well of teachers. Generally speaking, the public thinks well of firefighters. And they know, the, the unions for these public employees know that. And that's a major political tool that they have. So it's, that's why I think, you know, to keep going back to the point, that's why it's important to explain that there are victims to the system we have now. And those victims are you and I and our families and our kids and our communities. Uh, and, you know, the... the no, Jeff, I, I also, I also think part, part, of the, part of the victims are, are the people you just mentioned, though. They are the firefighters, the police officers, and the teachers. Because, look, I think anyone who knows police, as you were saying before, or teachers... Um, Look, we know that 90, 95% of them are in, the, are in this for the right reason, Absolutely. right? There's a, there's a great study in the, the education field, a guy named Rick Hanischek did it, which basically made the argument, if you get rid of the bottom 5% of teachers, you could elevate the, the performance of American students remarkably. This is a 5% problem, essentially. And I think that um, what's, always, what's remarkable to me about all this is just how clearly it is affecting inner city disadvantaged communities uh, in a way that's... Look, I live in Brookline, as you do, Jeff. It's different where we live. I mean, we're not that hard, hard affected by it. Um, you know, the, the loss of three months of learning, for example, over the last several uh, months uh, has affected all of us. But I, I think it probably most affects kids in Boston and Springfield and places like that. So, so yeah, I mean, to push one point beyond what you were saying, I thought what you were going to say is that it's a 5% it's a problem yet the 95% often get tarnished by the bad behavior. That's exactly it. And look at the hostility at the moment that's, you know, all over the country against, against police departments in general. Decent cops don't deserve that either. That's right. You just have to be able to collect the dots and show how the process of, of unionizing them often leads to this kind of result. That's right. So I want to take um, the conversation back to an issue. You, you alluded to the, the slogan, I guess you would call it, um, or the cry, uh, abolish the police or defund the police, which on its face seems categorically absurd. But uh, some people have presented this example of Camden, New Jersey, whereby uh, a notoriously uh, corrupt force was, uh, was disbanded only to see um, a crime improve. Uh, both sides have presented Camden as a sort of an evidence of, of what could be done. Have you taken a look at, at that uh, example and does, does what you've found uh, either support or uh, undermine your, uh, your recommendation? So what I, I, I'm not an expert on the Camden situation, but I, you know, it's come up a number of times. And so from what I was, you're right, it was a notoriously corrupt department and the city was horribly policed. Camden, New Jersey was terribly policed. They, they have, with the population of, of only 50,000, they had something like 67 murders per year. It was at the highest murder rate per capita of any city in America with a population of more than 50,000. The, the, the terms in the police contract were just shocking, even for someone, you know, even for people like us who have looked at these kind of contracts. Uh, 
if you uh, if you worked a night shift, you got a bonus. If you worked a day shift, you got a bonus. On any given day, 30% of the force would call in sick anyway. They were just unbelievable. And it made it unaffordable for the city of Camden to be able to put on its streets the number of police officers that it needed. Uh, one thing that I was looking at said that the average cost per officer to the taxpayers of Camden, New Jersey, was more than $182,000 per year. Uh, and so the city council eventually took this amazing step of simply abolishing the police force and instead turning over the policing of the city of Camden to Camden County, New Jersey. And the Camden County police, I'm not even sure if there had been the Camden County police force before that, but it was basically starting from scratch. Many of the cops from the Camden Police Department were immediately rehired but it was under new rules. And the new rules, I gather, again, I'm not an expert on the Camden story, I gather the new rules did not include any provision for collective bargaining. And the improvement was tremendous. They were able to put many more cops in the street. As you say, the crime numbers went down. Um, I'm not sure if, if in the years since there's been any push to unionize the Camden County Police Department. Uh, but it, I mean, it, it was... It was the opposite. It was the other side of the coin from all the research that shows that where police unions have uh, been authorized, where collective bargaining and police departments has taken hold, police abuse numbers go up. This was the flip side. It showed that when all of a sudden you got rid of collective bargaining and, and changed the way that uh, the policing terms and condition of employment and all the rest of it uh, were decided, that the abuse went down. If it worked in Camden, you know, I, I don't, I don't see why anybody wouldn't want to find out if it would work everywhere else too. Yeah. Jeff, so a lot of policymakers listen to Hubwonk. Uh, plan A is is to uh, is to abolish the unions. Plan B is to restrict it to restrict collective bargaining to salary, economic issues, but nothing related to management rights. Is that the right message for people to take away? I think so, absolutely, and. And to educate yourselves, you know, to learn more about collective bargaining in the public sector and why it is so different from collective bargaining in the private sector. If I can do a little bit of a, just a bit of a shameless plug, um, uh, one of the best articles I've ever written, I've ever read on the subject is one that I wrote. It was in Commentary Magazine 10 years ago. The, uh, you can find it online. The headline is What Public Sector Unions Have Wrought. And I went through, you know, at, at some length, it, you know, much of what we're talking about today. So the, the numbers in that piece are 10 years old, but I think the arguments um, you know, are very, you know, very much still relevant and worth, uh, worth considering. We'll, we'll send that out together with the, the, uh, the, the piece in the globe as we send out the, the, the uh, podcast. So Jeff, we're, we're getting close to the end of the time we have uh, uh, together. Um, you plugged a 10 year old article, um, which is for me to say we'll have a link. Uh, let me uh, say that I'd love to have you plug your arguable column. I think it's a wonderful uh, piece that arrives in my mailbox. It's a, it's a weekly uh, piece, isn't it? So I, yeah, so I do, uh, I do my two columns a week for the Globe, and then I do a weekly newsletter, so-called newsletter, which goes out by email that's not published in the paper. Um, uh, and I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a tremendous amount of writing, but I get, I get good feedback from it. It gives me a chance to be a little bit more personal, a little bit more offbeat sometimes in the, in the topics that I address or the way that I address them. It's called Arguable. It's a, it, it, there's no cost. It's free. There's about 130,000 subscribers. Um, anybody's interested, 
you can just the short link to get to it is bitly.com slash arguable. That'll, that'll uh, bring it up to you right away or send me a note, Jacoby at globe.com. I'm happy to sign up anybody who wants to read it. Thank you for, for bringing it up. Well, that, that's wonderful. We love to offer an uh, opportunity for a plug, and uh, I love your work. I read it uh, when it arrives. Uh, um, it's always uh, interesting and provocative and, uh, and useful. Uh, so uh, this brings us to, to, to the end of the show, and uh, I'm going to uh, end by uh, thanking you very much for your time. This has been a terrific Great. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, we're back. Um, Joe Salvaggi, this is Hubwonk. I'm here with Jim Sturgis. Jim, uh, we, uh, we had quite a conversation with Jeff. There was a lot covered there. Uh, clearly, Jeff is passionate about the topic. Uh, what jumped off the page for you in our conversation? So I, I thought it was a great conversation. Uh, there were three big things that jumped off the page for me. Uh, the first one is, um, you know, he really does have a convincing argument about the effects of unionization on the police and on policing. And it was um, interesting to hear that the reactions he's had to his own column were really broadly based, very positive. Uh, the, the second thing is, you know, his idea around uh, reducing collective bargaining rights back to sort of economic agency, that is salaries and that sort of thing, and benefits, um, it's not as far-fetched as you might think. I think that the conversations that uh, are happening out there are uh, Given where we are, that might be much more possible than you might think. Abolishing unions, maybe that's a step too far. I think the third one is um, the conversation we got into around the police and teachers and firefighters and how they themselves are negatively impacted by the unions. That is, you know, how would you feel if you were a police officer right now? Would you really feel proud in your work given all the kinds of arrows that policing is taking? Same thing for teachers, that uh, if you're a teacher that works hard. Uh, seeing that the union's protecting folks who are not working as hard. I mean, that takes a toll after a while. So I, I thought all those were really interesting points that he made. Yes, I, I agree with you on all the points you just made, Jim. I hope our listeners come away with that, that impression of the show. This wasn't an anti-union or anti-police or anti-anything, really. It was pro-good policing. It's, it's how to arrive at uh, a, you know, a culture and a uh, uh, public sphere where we trust the people who serve us uh, for public safety or for education, or I think we kept bringing back the uh, trash uh, uh, guys as well. So I think everybody wins if we work together and, and figure out some way, as you say, to um, reform what we have so that we protect policemen, but we also have a good mind for uh, protecting the public. So thank you for joining us today, Jim. This is your first hub wonk. I really appreciate you taking time out of your, out of your day. Thanks for having me. Please have me again. <laughs> Listeners, you can find our full series of weekly Hubwonk podcasts at pioneerinstitute.org backslash Hubwonk. If you enjoyed our show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can write a review, and you can subscribe to the show to ensure new episodes are downloaded every Tuesday at 11. If you would like to reach me with questions or learn how you can be a sponsor for the show, you can email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to sharing our upcoming Hubwonk podcast next week, as always, on Tuesday morning at 11 a.m.